Thank you, Lori. Well, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And stand with me as we read God's Word for us today, anticipating Him to speak to us. Verses 24 through 27 is our text today. As a reminder, as Jesus is traveling now towards Jerusalem to give His life for sinners. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Please pray with me. Father, we come before you today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, I I pray, Lord, just as you miraculously provided this tax to be paid from an unlikely source, from the mouth of a fish, Lord, I pray that you would use even, even my mouth, the sinner's mouth today, to be able to teach your word to your people and provide for your people what we need. God, please, um, we are insufficient, and I am insufficient in every way. We are all insufficient in ourselves to hear your word correctly spoken, and I am certainly insufficient to speak it. But God, you are super abundant to your people. And we pray today that as you promised in Isaiah, that your word would come forth and bear fruit, that you would do it today, Lord by your power and grace. In Christ's name, we believe you. We trust in your spirit. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. I imagine it's a universal thing, but it's possible it's just an American thing that we typically have a hatred for taxes. Um, As I looked online... You know, we've all heard taxation is theft, and we can have our libertarian um, spirit rise up in our hearts where we, we hate all kind of taxation given to us by the government. Now, while we might joke about that, there's a truth and a reality to monetary things being owed to somebody speaks strongly of the bondage of being in debt. And the Bible speaks of being in debt as a bondage, that the, the lender is over the one who's being lent to, and we are servants to those who lend to us. And there's a true bondage there. And if any of you have ever been in like deep credit card debt or student loans, you know what it feels like to have this burden constantly hanging over your head. And for that reason, um, we have a, a strong desire to be, break away from and be free of wicked impositions on us in monetary form. Oh, but brothers and sisters, there's a deep spiritual parallel that we often go unnoticed. We get so angry about people taking our money and become angry in our hearts and feel downcast when we are monetarily in debt. But the Bible speaks of every man, woman, and child without Christ being in a spiritual debt, a debt that we cannot repay, nor can we, will we ever repay. 
The spiritual parallel of this passage is what our minds ought to be focused on as we read this text. And I hope to bring that out to you today. That we are not debtors toward God. In fact, we are free. And Jesus, in this text, is asked to to pay the temple tax. That you might have noticed in Exodus chapter 30 was read by Brother Joey. And he takes opportunity to teach Peter about Christian liberty through this tax. Now, the purpose of this text, I believe, is twofold like usual. First, to rejoice in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. That's a clear implication from this text. And secondly, that we would use that same freedom that Christ has given us in love. All right. So, first and foremost, I want us to see that we must, in a proper apprehension of this text, rejoice in the freedom that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Now, we notice at the beginning of this text that Jesus uses the opportunity of this kind of mundane paying of this temple tax to teach Peter privately or in secret a very profound spiritual truth, right? And we must go back in our context, and if you're weary of that, that's okay. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, again, we've entered into a new phase of Jesus Christ's ministry. He is now set His face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to pay for the sins of His people and to accomplish the great work of Calvary that all of the Old Testament has been pointing forward to. This is the zenith of all biblical history and it's coming very shortly. In eight short months, Christ will ascend that hill with that cross on His back and He will pay for everyone's sin. And nothing will hinder Him from doing that work. Nothing will hinder Him. It is great. And the work of redemption that Jesus Christ came to earth to complete is soon to be finished. And He will cry out on that cross to tell us die. It is finished. But, on the journey there, In these eight months in between the period when Jesus Christ is on the Mount of Transfiguration and going to ascend the hill of Calvary, there is much care that must be taken and prudence to be exercised by our Messiah. What do I mean by that? Well, first, towards His enemies. He has clearly taught the Gospel and has caused hatred to rise up in the heart of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all are looking at Him. For him to slip up to make a mistake. They're looking for a reason to crucify him. And Jesus walks carefully towards that crowd. But with his disciples, he must teach them. He must prepare them for what's going to happen. He's going to die, be taken away from them. And so he must balance bold teaching to his disciples with, with a careful prudence to the outside watching and hypocritical world. And Christ in this passage shows perfect wisdom that He always shows. Being the very wisdom of God Himself, He shows it in human form here. And He first shows it towards the outside world. I want us to see that. These men come up to Peter and they say, does your teacher pay the tax? Now, there's a couple of possibilities how to read this. Okay, First, it, it might be perfectly legitimate request Um, that they're just coming up. They see that Christ and His disciples haven't paid this particular tax. And they want to know, does Jesus pay the tax or not? 
But I find it far more likely with the themes that we've seen in the trajectory of the enemies of Christ in this passage that they're looking to trip Him up in some way here. Does your teacher pay the tax or not? We've noticed he hasn't paid it. And so, therefore, Peter gives an answer. And Peter gives a ready answer. Yes, of course. Peter knows that his Messiah and his Savior, he adheres to the, to the doctrine of the Mosaic Code. And he says he will pay this tax. Um, now, I want us to see here that Jesus... As he comes, Peter comes and says yes. Peter enters the door. Notice it says that Peter first tells him. That is, that Jesus knew in his uh, omnipotent mind that Peter coming in had said this yes. And he uses it for an opportunity. But Christ, he walks wisely towards the outside world. He knows that these men are watching. Okay? Now, I would ask the question, have you ever been in a particular providence, that you were so anxious about the things that were going on in your life, in your marriage, in your workplace, whatever it might be, you're so consumed with anxiety that you're unable to perform the duties that you know you ought to perform. I just can't study today because my heart is so heavy and weighed down, I can't pay attention to the things that I ought to study. It's been a constant theme in my life. But it's not so in Jesus Christ. Even though the whole world is watching Him, bearing down on Him, waiting for Him to trip up and make a mistake, Jesus Christ never neglects His duty, never sinfully falls into anxiety. Rather, He takes opportunity, even with all of this crushing down upon Him, to teach His disciples. He takes opportunity to reveal something amazing. And that simple text, I want us to to keep it and hide it in our hearts today then the sons are free. Then the sons are free, right? Now, before you go out and you, we all go to the tattoo parlor and get taxation as theft tattooed upon our back or something like that, we have to realize that this is not talking about the IRS and us being free from the IRS, not freedom from the state trooper that's going to pull us over because we're disobeying the laws of traffic. Rather, that this is a ceremonial law that Christ is referring to. That is, when we see that Jesus saying the sons are free, He's making reference to a very particular point in the Mosaic Law that this temple tax points to. This tax was meant to teach the people of Israel in the Old Covenant about sin. About sin. Now, I want us to realize, turn turn with me to Exodus chapter 30, that this tax was typical and ceremonial. It was typical as in it was a type of the atonement that was to be given by Jesus Christ. And it was ceremonial, meaning that it had to do with the worship of the Old Covenant. And in Exodus chapter 30, as Brother Joey read for us today, I want us to notice that it is ceremonial first, broadly, because of its place within the book of Exodus. Okay? We're going through the whole Christ this afternoon, and part of that is talking about the threefold division of the law. And many people would say the threefold division is nowhere clearly seen, but it's, it's not divided up that way. But I would propose to you that it is. That in Exodus chapter 20, we have the moral law, and we don't have this temple tax found there. In Exodus chapters 21 through 24, we have the ceremonial, or the civil law rather, 
And we do not see it there, but here, right in the middle of the ceremonial law of Exodus 25-40, through 40, we have this text spoken. And in fact, it is snugly situated between the altar of incense and the bronze basin. Okay, So, just the position of this temple tax within the Mosaic book should tell us that it's ceremonial, but I want us to notice the very specific language of this tax. Notice in verse 11 and 12, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you Number them. And then skip down with me to verses 15 and 16. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for their lives. I want us to just briefly and plainly see here that when Jesus says that the sons are free with regard to this tax, He's speaking of a very peculiar tax. Not to teach us that we're free from secular authorities taxing us, but that all the children of God are free from this ceremonial tax. Now, this tax was to teach us and teach them the relationship of the people to their God. Okay? God is king. And I want us to see, because this tax was given, and it's for the maintenance of the temple, okay, we have to understand a little bit of the biblical theology surrounding the temple itself. You might recall if we look back all the way to the Garden of Eden, that mankind walked in special communion with God in that temple of the Garden. God walked with them in the cool of the day and we had unparalleled access to our God. But when we fell in our sin, God's special presence was taken away from His people. No longer did we have free access. But then, in the Mosaic dispensation, when the tabernacle was built, God graciously provided His presence to His people once again. Something that had been missing for a long period of time. God was now dwelling in the midst of His people as the central tent around whom the whole community joined together. But, in the tabernacle and in the temple, God's presence that was once again renewed among His people had restrictions added to it. It had restrictions added to it. It was a conditional kind of presence. There must be atonement. There must be a priesthood. There are many steps in between you and the unmediated presence of God. And in this system, the sacrificial system was key, wasn't it? That some sacrifices taught that the people to have access to God, they must have a sacrifice that took God's wrath away. Such as in the burnt offering. As that animal was placed upon that that bronze altar and the fire consumed it, it typified to the people of Israel that God's wrath must be taken away in order for Him to be in fellowship with me. Some sins taught not the wrath of God being taken away, but that our sin is actually repulsive to God. 
It's an unclean and a dirty thing. When we read about uh, leprosy, bodily fluids, and the sacrifices for that, it's to teach us that our sin, which is inherent in our own very nature, is repulsive to God. It's unclean. It's not something that we want to touch. And therefore, that has to be taken away. But, there's another angle of another sacrifice to look at. And that is debt. Debt. There were some um, sacrifices, such as the sin offering, and this particular tax that pictures sin as a debt that is owed to God. A debt that needs to be paid. And we know that even in the New Testament, we pray daily, I hope, that God, You would forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this debt that we owe to God is both an original and an actual debt. What do I mean by that? I mean that from our birth, we have original sin adhering to us in our person, in our body, that we have the sin of Adam upon us, and we have to pay that debt. We owe it to God in some way. But more than that, I love how William Perkins puts this, our debt towards God is like the principle and the interest that we often owe in our human debts. The principle that we owe to God is perfect, perfect, perpetual obedience to God in everything that He commands. And the interest is the punishment that we owe to God for never completing any of that obedience in our lives. And we can never pay this debt. God puts these symbols and these types in the Old Covenant that the people would realize that they owe a debt to God, but it's a debt that we can never repay. Rather, it accrues daily. That every disobedience that we commit and every obedience that we omit, like Romans 2.4 tells us, stores up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment was to be revealed. This tax was meant to teach the people that they needed to have a debt canceled. They needed to have a debt canceled. The true reality of this was that they were in debt to a God and that we had no means of payment. And the picture in this passage is very strong. As Peter comes to Jesus and says, of course we pay the tax. And Jesus tells Peter to go into the sea and cast a hook and bring up a fish. We have a picture that Peter's debt is provided not by the works of himself, but through an act of faith in what Jesus Christ says. And this all was pointing forward to Calvary. When Jesus pays, not in silver and gold, but with his own blood, the debt of every man, woman, and child that would ever believe in him. And Christian, it's been paid for you. You are under a severe load of debt without Jesus Christ, something that you would never repay. And that debt is so harsh and so burdensome to us that it will be forever in hell be put upon us and be paid for eternity. But Jesus Christ took all of that debt and paid it in full on the cross for us. And we are free. Again, notice the language of that passage. Then the sons are free. Free never to be brought in bondage again toward our God. Never to be in subjection to a system where we have to make atonement for ourselves. Rather, Jesus Christ 
has made us free. And the question we have to ask is how are we free? Or what are we free from? And Christians are free in a whole host of ways free to God. First, we're free with regard to men binding our consciences. And Jesus has spoke at length of that in chapter 15 of our text. As the Pharisees came and they tried to bind the consciences of men with all of their own doctrines, Christians are free from that. But we're also freed from the ceremonial law. And that's something that we've been looking at. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all of these we are freed from no longer having to make sacrifices because the antitype, Jesus Christ, has come into the world and fulfilled everything. No longer are we under the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant, the cleanliness code and the holiness code of the Old Covenant because Jesus has freed us from all of those things. Everything that the ceremonial law was teaching is fulfilled absolutely and completely in Jesus Christ. Everything by which the people in the Old Testament worshipped has been abolished and torn away because Christ and Christ alone has fulfilled it. We are freed from all of the kind of worship that belonged specifically to the Mosaic period of the law. And the reason for that is because we are freed from the condemnation and the guilt of the law. Now this is the most important point for us here today. We're not just freed from going to the temple and paying a tax because it would be really kind of a drag to do so every Lord's Day. Rather, we're freed from the condemnation of the law. That is that there is no guilt, no shame, no curse, and no dominion of sin for God's people. Now, I want us to turn to Romans chapter 6 um, to see this. Because in my notes, I have put together, we're freed from the condemnation of the law and we're freed from sin. And I didn't separate those two because in Romans, these things are put together quite powerfully. And again, I hope as we read these things, you will be impressed in your mind and convinced that we are free, brothers and sisters, Romans chapter 6, notice in verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sin to, uh, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That is, because Christ took the condemnation that you deserve, you are no longer under the law. No longer does the law act as a condemning force upon your conscience. You've been set free from it, and connected very tightly to that is that, this, that sin no longer has dominion over you. In chapter 7, we see much the same thing in verses 1 through 4. Under a different picture, that of marriage. Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. 
For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband died, she is free from that law, and she marries another man. She is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit to God. Before you were converted, you were so connected to the law that condemned you that Paul speaks of it as a marriage. You were one flesh with it. You had a relationship to it that could not be disposed of. It condemned you in everything that you had, but the righteousness and the sacrifice of Christ is so sufficient for us that it breaks that marriage. And it breaks us by killing us and by killing the law's power towards us. No longer are you married to the law in any way, shape, or form, nor can you be, because it's been dissolved in your death. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, you died with Him, and so you are free to be married to another husband. Married to Jesus Christ, who has taken the whole law upon Himself. No longer are you condemned by the law, and no longer can the law have dominion over you because you're dead to it. And then lastly, Romans chapter 8, we have this clear representation and connection of the law and its condemning power with sin and its dominion. Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4 says this, Therefore, or sorry, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life, notice, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit there is absolutely no condemnation for you brothers and sisters and i know we read this verse a lot but do you believe that that when god looks upon you he is not looking upon you as a king who owes him something You have to pay your taxes or else you're in trouble. He looks upon you as a completely free, debt-free child of God who can come into His presence in absolutely any time. That Jesus Christ has fulfilled for you everything that you could not fulfill for yourself. We are absolutely, completely free to our God. Complete freedom is given. Complete freedom is given to the children of God. And to repeat the point, that means that true freedom, it only belongs to the sons of God. It doesn't belong to everybody universally. Some are still under the guilt and the condemnation of the law. Some are still under this sense. And we know that in our passage, when Jesus speaks here, He says, then the sons are free. If we think back to Matthew, what's the primary reference point that Jesus is making here? It's Jesus who in chapter 16, Peter confesses that you are the Son of the living God. It's Jesus who on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice is born from the clouds that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ had no obligation 
had no debt to God, and He never did. From His existence in eternity to His coming down in the likeness of men, Jesus Christ had no sin to atone for, no debt that He owed to God. And so we might say, well, why does He pay the tax at all? Well, it's because Jesus is our representative in every way. He came in the likeness of sinful men and for sin. He was presented in the temple on the eighth day for circumcision. He went to all the atonement sacrifices. Jesus Christ was even baptized for sinners to fulfill all righteousness. But Jesus had no real sin to atone for. Nothing that came between Him and His God. He is a Son of God by nature, eternally, and therefore is freed from all the obligations and condemnations of the law. But we are sons and daughters of God through adoption. And if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, you are free because you are His Son. In a true way, we are sons of God because Jesus is the Son of God and we've been united to Him. And the Scripture calls us brothers of Him. In Galatians chapter 4, which Brother Matt read, I'd like you to turn there to impress this upon you today. Galatians chapter 4. It's a wonderful book. Uh, reading through it this week. I want us to notice how Paul speaks of us. Verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come... I'm going to read verse 3 as well. How about that? In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, the ceremonial laws that pointed to our condemnation, our need for atonement. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, notice, born of a woman, born under the law, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Notice verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This ought to set us free, brothers, that the sons are free. Some of us act and live as if we're on probation before God and we can't have any true joy or freedom before Him until we prove ourselves in some way. But it's just not true. It's been freely offered in the Gospel of Jesus Christ that He did it all for us. And this freedom is offered to absolutely anybody here that is under the condemnation and guilt of the law. If you feel oppressed by it and you feel like I need atonement and I need to do something that God would accept me, Jesus Christ has done all for you and He sets you free by uniting Himself to you. This is a glorious freedom that is offered to us today. And I have just scratched the surface. Just scratched the surface of our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. But we must hold these truths vibrantly and fully. And we must not let our own conscience, the devil or the world or the opinions of men sway us from the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Galatians 5 and verse 1 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
This freedom is precious to the children of God. It's freedom towards God to obey Him and to love Him. But brothers and sisters, one of the one of the strangest things about us is even though we've been set free from sin by Jesus Christ, been made new creatures by Him, there is such sin that still exists in our bodies that we have to be warned time and time again in the New Testament to live as free people, but not to use our freedom as a cover-up from malice. That we can see ourselves truly and accurately as completely free before our God And we take that freedom and we try to transpose it on other elements of life so that we don't have to love God and love our neighbor. And so, we must use our freedom in love. We must use our freedom in love. And we have the example of Jesus Christ here, don't we? He tells Peter, the sons are free. But he doesn't follow it up. Therefore, we ought to revolt against those who are taking the temple tax. And do like Rehoboam, they did to Rehoboam's servant and stone him for trying to collect the tax from us. Rather, we have Jesus Christ's good example that instead of causing offense, unnecessary offense to the watching world, He gives up His rights. He lays aside the freedom that is truly His in order to love others. Now, I want us to see that Jesus Christ stood firmly for freedom of the disciples primarily many times in His life. Rather, in a shocking way. He corrected the legalistic minds of the Pharisees uh, with the Sabbath, didn't He? That Jesus knew very well what the standards of His time were taught by the Pharisees of how they should behave on the Sabbath. But He stood for freedom where taking His disciples boldly through the fields on the Sabbath day and taking uh, heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them because it was necessary for their food. Christ taught that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And therefore, He boldly stood for freedom in that particular regard. Also, on the Sabbath, He boldly stood for freedom by healing people on the Sabbath. Again, he knew full well that men were looking at him and thought that what he was doing was sinful. But Christ, for the sake of his people, freely healed people on the Sabbath day to show that mercy ought to be shown on the Sabbath. And we can go further, can't we? Jesus corrected the legalism by dining with sinners, tax collectors, and Gentiles. He corrected the legalism of the Pharisees in their ceremonial hand-washing ordinances in chapter 15. That they thought that this cleansed you before God, but Christ shows that it did not. Jesus boldly stood for true freedom in God's law in a number of different occasions, but what we should see here is that whenever the gospel or the rights of His church were being infringed upon by the enemies of the church, Jesus stood boldly But when it came to his own personal rights, Jesus freely, freely submitted to human authority. He freely relinquished his rights on many occasions. Uh, I'm struck by Jesus relinquishing his rights many times when he heals somebody or casts out a demon and he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about this. Jesus Christ has the right above all other things in this world to be celebrated, worshipped, and adored, and to be recognized for who He truly was. 
But in order not to cause offense and not to bring too much scandal to his ministry, he often told people not to tell anybody about what he was doing. Jesus Christ could have rightly called down judgment at any time. That's his prerogative as the Son of God. But he gave up that right on many occasions to show mercy to his people. But all of this is a shadow of what he did when he came to earth in the incarnation. He was in the form of God. He received the worship of angels and men and all creation was from Him and to Him and through Him. And yet, He gave up all of those divine prerogatives to be born as a man and take upon Himself the form of a servant. Jesus Christ's life was characterized by standing firmly on the Gospel for the sake of His people and for the message of the Gospel, but giving up His own personal rights for the good of His church. And we are called to do the same here. There are many scriptural principles that we must see for living in the liberty that we're called to in Jesus Christ. And the first, these four brief things, which I'm sure we can add much to, is that we must not let anyone ever bring us into spiritual bondage again. We cannot allow it to happen. Whether through the preaching of men, the scruples of other people in the church, we cannot allow other people to dictate to us how we ought to feel before God. If they make us feel we're in debt to God anymore, or that we must do a particular action to be accepted by God, we must not allow it. We must guard our families, our church, and ourselves from the laws of men. Christ was in a unique place here. And obviously, He did not want unnecessary offense knowing that the people did not have knowledge about what He was going to accomplish. But we must make it clear that men cannot bind our consciences. But, secondly, we must never deny the Gospel in an attempt to lovingly lay aside our rights. Sometimes we can be so willing to get along with other people. That we can do things that may perhaps actually deny the Gospel itself. And we see this in the book of Galatians, don't we? Um, Galatians chapter 5. And as we consider this chapter in this book, we see that there's men that snuck in unaware to spy out the freedom that they had in Jesus Christ and to bring them under bondage. Adding something to faith alone in Jesus Christ. He must be circumcised in order to be saved. And I want us to notice the strength of the Apostle's language in verse 2 and 3. Look at this. Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, this does not mean that the physical act of circumcision puts men under the law, but the Galatian church, in submitting to these heretics coming in, they accepted the lie to accept circumcision as a requirement of God's law, would put you under the whole law. Would make you a debtor to the law. 
And we must not do that. We must never deny the gospel in an attempt to set aside the law. But we must often lay aside our personal rights before others. And the questions we should ask ourselves is this. If we have a particular right or a Christian liberty that we're holding to and we know that the people surrounding us don't have that, we should ask ourselves, is this a personal matter that can be set aside? Or does this have intricate relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is this going to put me under bondage somehow or put my church or family under bondage? And if the answer is no to that, then we ought to set it aside in love. If it's just a personal right that we have. And we see Paul taking this very same kind of spirit from Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-23. Where Notice the language of Paul here in freedom. I know I've read a lot of scripture here. The freedom that Paul has and the freedom that he lays aside. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. And he puts a qualification here though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. If we have a personal matter like Jesus Christ, if it's a personal right that the gospel is not infringed by us laying it aside, brothers and sisters, we ought to lay it aside for love's sake. And the last thing I'll have for us today is a test case that we have. And this is Paul with Timothy. Um, Timothy and Titus. Now in both of these texts, we have these men dealing with circumcision. One accepts circumcision and the other does not. And both of them, I think, are on the grounds of Christian love that we have just discussed. So in Acts chapter 16, we have the example of Timothy. Acts 16, in verse 3, we see that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay? But the difference that we see is how Titus is treated in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 2. Verses 3 through 5, notice this. Paul dealing with a different circumstance, whereas Titus, or I'm sorry, where Timothy is circumcised as a preventative measure so that people wouldn't be unnecessarily offended, we see Titus here dealing with this heresy that you must be circumcised in order to be saved, and there's a totally different outlook on it. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced, not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield submission for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, I don't know if this is helpful. I hope that it is. 
we see that Paul deals with circumcision in two radically different ways because of the context that it's given. When it's a personal thing that has to be done or laid aside in order to gain a hearing for the Gospel, or to prevent unnecessary problems, then rights are laid aside. But, if it's because men are trying to bring us into bondage and add to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says we would not yield submission even for a moment. And that is what we are to emulate here, brothers and sisters. We are absolutely, totally free in Jesus Christ. Freed from condemnation, guilt, and shame. And we should live before Him as free people, but never using our freedom as a cover-up for evil and malice. We can use our freedoms to teach about the glories of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. When your neighbor sees you sin and immediately go to God and be joyful, and they ask you why you can do that, you can say, it's because my God freely accepts me, not because of anything I've ever done, but it set me free in Christ. I don't have to do works of atonement in order to enter His presence again. We can teach the glory of the Gospel by our freedom. But our sinfulness, in our sinfulness, we can use the doctrine of freedom for selfishness and a lack of love. Um, And so, by looking to Christ and His example, we should be able to glory in the freedom that we have and rejoice while living in love that Jesus laid down His life by by asserting true Gospel freedom, but at the same time denying Himself. And so, in conclusion today, this text about the temple tax is meant to show us something. It's meant to teach us that we are totally free from condemnation, guilt, and shame through Jesus Christ, and also by Christ's example, that we are to use this freedom wisely in dealing with the world. And so, as we turn our eyes to the communion table today, We eat and drink freely with our Savior. There's nothing more intimate in human experience with friends and family and loved ones, and especially with a king, than being invited around a table to share the hospitality of that king and to eat and drink with him. And this is a show and a proof of our full freedom to come to him anytime. Just as a, a child comes to the table whenever dinner is served, so we come here freely to partake of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.